Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 10 of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. I'm your host, Michael Cerulli. And I'm Dave Kostek with the Connecticut Democrats. We did it, Dave. 10 episodes. Yay, we've gotten to double digits. So now, you know, we got to get, uh, I guess, another 98 of them before we celebrate <laughs> this sort of thing again. So uh, yep. stick around for that, folks. But most importantly, uh, stick around through the weekend. Help us get these votes out. We need your help. Please check out our website for ctdems.org slash volunteer or look up your local candidates and get out that vote. What have you been doing for GOTV? Uh, well, I was with Stephanie Thomas last week. I'll be with her again this weekend and with some other candidates as well. Spent a bit of time on the trail with Governor Ned Lamont and door knocked for one of the candidates we have on the show today. Tell about tell the folks about who you were able to interview, Dave. Michelle McCabe is running in the 28th Senatorial District. That's the district that starts uh, in the south is in Fairfield, goes up through Easton, up into Newtown and has pieces of Weston and Westport. So she uh, is making a run at that seat. That'll be a flip from R to D and one that we uh, that we need if we want to build that firewall against what we expect to come down from the Supreme Court. Well, that's outstanding. I love Michelle. She's one of my favorite candidates running in this cycle. And I had the opportunity to sit down with somebody who is also an outstanding public servant and who has been on the ballot more than a few times here in Connecticut, our longest serving United States Senator, Chris Dodd. Awesome. What'd you guys talk about? Oh, we talked about a lot. We talked about his relationship with Vice President Joe Biden. I don't know if you know this, but Joe has actually called Chris Dodd his best friend. Uh, we also talked about uh, some possible Senate reforms and the Dodd Center at the University of Connecticut, which is a very interesting little landmark here in the state. Let's get to it. This is Michael Cerulli's interview with former U.S. Senator Chris Dodd. Senator Chris Dodd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael, very much. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for being here. We're, we're about one week out, well, exactly one week out from the election as of today. Uh, how are you feeling about the state of the race? Well, I think it's going well. I mean, I, you know, we're in Connecticut, and obviously it feels good here. I, I live in eastern Connecticut, where I've been home now for the last four months with my two daughters and wife. And um, uh, Joe Courtney's my congressman in that part of the state. And Joe's working hard. I think he's got some great ads up on television. And he's worked so hard on behalf of that district on the job creation and all the other issues he's worked on. So I'm getting kind of a flavor of it from that perspective. So I, I think we're in pretty good shape. I expect Joe Biden to be elected president of the United States a week from tonight. I may take a couple of days based on all the reports we're getting to get a final result. Uh, I'm not predicting any great big blue wave at this point. That would be wonderful if that were the case. But I, I feel pretty secure looking at the polling data with a week to go. His numbers seem to be growing, not shrinking in battleground states um, across the country. So I'm anticipating a Biden victory with Kamala Harris. Uh, I'm also predicting that Donald Trump is going to be doing anything and everything in his power to stay in office and to acquire the Electoral College mm -hmm. vote. Uh, by challenging every paper ballot, every absentee ballot, referring to the whole system as corrupt and rigged in every other way he can. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've got a contest uh, coming up, not about who may have won. I think that's going to be pretty clear. But, but whether or not Donald Trump can tie mm -hmm. up the process in the courts and possibly even the Congress of the United States under our federal laws, what happens right, in a right. contest. So I feel optimistic about the results. I think we've got an excellent chance. 
for Democrats to take control of the Senate, not by a huge margin, because mm-hmm. you only need to control it by one or two to be able to set the agenda and have the right to decide what uh, what matters will come up and what issues will be voted on. So that'll be a great asset for Joe Biden as president to have the Senate and the House working with him. And then I anticipate, Michael, let me take you to one place we don't go very often. Certainly. I, I would hope that Joe Biden, I'm confident he will, would reach out to mayors and governors, both red state and blue state governors and mayors, because I suspect in the, in the climate we're in of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, the economic issues, that red state and blue state governors and mayors are going to have very similar agendas. And the idea that it's going to be partisan to them, they're going to need help on job creation, on education, on health care, on infrastructure, you name the issue. This is, these are not red or blue issues. <laughs> these are issues that a, a governor of a state or a mayor of a major city or town need help with. And I think if Joe develops a relationship with the governors and the mayors, in addition to the Congress people, he can mm-hmm. have a very successful turn uh, by those governors so telling the members of their congressional delegation, be supportive, work together, get the job done. So I'm optimistic about a Biden presidency. So you, do you think something like infrastructure would be the, a good first thing to, to move on if he's president and there's a Democratic Senate? Yeah, I do. I think it's, a, a, if not the first, one of the top two or three issues. There are going to be an awful lot of questions for the new president to grapple with. But I think this is clearly one of the first ones. Getting people back to work. Uh, Joe Biden is not going to shut down the country at the expense of the economy. Mm-hmm. He believes, as most of us do, that you can... What's that old line? You can walk and chew gum. I guess it's kind of a worn out yeah. phrase. But, yeah. but, but I think we can fight the pandemic and we can also get our economy moving. Uh, and it's going to take a great leadership, a lot of cooperation between public and private sector, uh, between Democrats and Republicans and independents. Uh, we've gone a long time here about, about individuality. We have our own websites. We have our own Facebook. We have this, that, and the other. And I think we're kind of getting exhausted from that. Instead of just talking about I or me, I think the country wants to talk about us uh, yep. and we. And I think Joe Biden is perfectly suited by personality and experience mm-hmm. to understand that it's important we get back to us as a country. And I think that's what he's going to urge people to do. And I've got a good feeling the country may be ready to work on us as a nation. After I think all so, too. Yeah, I think so too. And it's, it's interesting your perspective on it because you were the one of the leaders during the last recession that we had in 2008 yeah. um, recovering from that. Do you see a lot of similarities between this recession and the needed recovery and the last recession? Well, I'll tell you, the last recession, uh, everyone talked about it has been the greatest economic threat since the Great Depression. But, but no one envisioned that 10 years later we'd be talking about Mm-hmm. this kind of, uh, of, of problem, a pandemic of global proportions that is, would take the lives of, what is it, 226,000 people, as you and I speak, Michael, uh, with 8 million in this country, the largest population of affected people in the world in the United States. Uh, so mm-hmm. that was a serious crisis. And we came together. I always remind people that in the fall of 2008, which was a presidential election year, Mm-hmm. That Congress was controlled by Democrats in both the House and the Senate. And George Bush was president during that crisis. And yet we worked together. Uh, we passed some very unpopular bills, but necessary <laughs> bills, yep. to get the country back on its feet again. It's hard to imagine that was only 12 years ago when Democrats and Republicans, despite differences, 
despite the fact we were 40 days away from a national election, we didn't just sit back and say, let George Bush assume the responsibility, let it all fall apart, and then we'll pick up the pieces in, in January. Mm-hmm. We didn't think that was the right thing to do. And so we all worked together. We made a difference and got the country moving again. We always said, you know, we're not sure what we've done will protect us against the next crisis. None of us could have possibly imagined what this crisis would look like. It's far right. more serious mm-hmm. and probably has far greater chance of longevity because we're going to be looking for a, a vaccine that works, uh, realize it's a global problem, so we could be exposed over and over again, despite the fact that we have vaccines. Will the vaccine be as effective as we'd like it to be? Will it only be 50% effective? Mm-hmm. Hopefully 90% effective or higher. So there are a lot of ifs in all of this. And so we couldn't have imagined. But I'll tell you this much. Despite all the difficulty I had, because I was vehemently opposed in the so-called Dodd-Frank bill that I wrote right. with Barney Frank of Massachusetts, uh, and that piece of legislation, the banking industry and the financial services sector was vehemently opposed to that bill. Fought us tooth and nail to stop the passage of that bill. And yet, what did we discover during the most recent crisis of the pandemic, particularly last spring? The banks were so well capitalized, had such great mm-hmm. liquidity, had all the things we had asked them to do, that banks played a very positive role. And the very people who attacked the bill we drafted back 12 years ago were praising the condition of American banks and what a positive pro- role they played last spring and this summer when yep. banks were actually lending money and helping to stabilize an economy right, in the first right. crisis, worst crisis since the Great Depression. We now hand it over to Dave Kostick for his conversation with State Senate candidate Michelle McCabe. Michelle McCabe is the candidate for the state Senate in the 28th Senatorial District. That's a big chunk of Fairfield County, starting from Fairfield in the south and stretching up to Newtown in the north. Welcome. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great to have you in this last week. Uh, what, what are we doing for GOTV? How are we Ging o those Vs? Uh, calls, calls, calls. And then when we're done, we're going to make some more calls. Just talking to voters day and night, night and day. It's amazing actually how many people are planning on going to the polls because we do ask Mm -hmm. and uh, many of them are, even though we also have a ton, as you know, of ballots that have already been received. So I think we're going to be shattering all kinds of with people going to the polls and getting out their vote. It it is remarkable. Uh, This thing came out today that it's the highest voter uh, registration numbers we've ever seen and a huge surge of young people registering is sort of powering that. Um, so far about a third of people that I think will vote have voted. So, uh, with two thirds of those votes still out there, uh, what are you talking about? What topics, what issues are, are driving things in your neck of Connecticut? Well, as you are probably not going to be surprised to hear it's COVID related one way or the other. So it's anywhere from, uh, enormous concern about health insurance Uh, which is why uh, people are very responsive and positive when I tell them about my support of Kevin Lembo's public option, which I'm very excited about. Uh, People are concerned about mental health without question and across the board and uh, the connection, of course, with uh, addiction. There are some unsurprising but startling statistics, as I'm sure you know, across the country of people that are really suffering, people that are in danger of relapse, people who are in danger of suicide, the impact on our young people. Uh, so a lot of concern about mental health. 
and uh, talking a lot about expanding access to that. Um, how are businesses going to weather the next year? Uh, I, for one, am excited to get up to Hartford and assist not only in terms of financial support, but really we need to help with their ability to pivot and to be able to generate revenue, uh, possibly in new ways. We've all learned to innovate uh, in the face of these challenges. And I think, especially given that we've been through it for some time, there's some best practices and interesting ideas that are out there that we need to, as a state, be investing in our business community's ability to thrive, even despite all of the challenges that are being uh, impacted by the pandemic. So uh, yeah, education, I mean, really everything you can think of, but uh, very much shaped by this new environment that we're living in right now. And then with the young voters, as you can imagine too, it's about debt, it's about climate change. Uh, it's wonderful that so many young voters uh, are looking to hit the polls because their future is on the line. Uh, we knew this before, but the, between the extreme weather events and the forest fires, uh, it's clear that resiliency has to be top of mind for everybody as we're moving into the next year. Um, next year in Connecticut, um, a lot of things got pushed off. You know, it was a short session this time, right? There was a lot done in 2019 and then 2020 got cut short. And then talking to some of the other reps, a lot of this stuff uh, will be pushed into the next session. Um, what do you think January looks like if you get up there? What is the priority? COVID. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's about resiliency in the face of it. And again, resiliency and sustainability, not just because of the pandemic, but like I said, it's like a, the pandemic has been a stress test to us. It's yeah. showing the challenges, the gaps, the ways that our infrastructure is not stepping up to the challenges that we're going to inevitably be facing. And so I think we need to be looking very specifically at resiliency. Uh, I am very much a strong proponent of a green economy and a green new deal uh, that, you know, environmentally sound practices are the way of the future. I know that the national uh, dialogue would imply that it's a small subset of people that are interested, but the private sector actually is very interested in reducing its own carbon footprint. Uh, environmental uh, social governance is a huge uh, interest for the business community. I would love to see uh, Connecticut be a turnkey environment for people that want to live or operate a business in a green way. So some of that is increasing the competitiveness of, cre of um, clean energy options, which inevitably will help us to lower our electricity rates. I mean, we we're paying the second highest electricity cost in the country. I don't know about you, but every time I opened my bill, I nearly passed out and had to put my head between my knees. It was really bad. Yeah. Uh, and this was before we had a tropical storm that showed us that those dollars were not buying us very much, were they? I mean, it's all yeah. delivery fees. It's not even the actual energy that's costing us so much money. So uh, I think we need, we need other options. Um, you know, we need to continue to subsidize our solar industry, I'm a huge fan of anaerobic digestion. It's my thing. Uh, so that's using food waste to generate clean energy. I've not so, heard this one I'm sorry? I've not heard this one before. Oh yeah, it's the coolest thing. Uh, talking, so I, in my work as the director of the Center for Food Equity and Economic Development, we actually use food waste to create products that we sell uh, to support 
our nonprofit and also to train people in entrepreneurship. And there's a whole life cycle of food that we could be capturing uh, energy that comes from its decomposition. Right now, if food waste is in a landfill, it actually contributes to global warming because okay. it is an, a methane emitter. Right. But in an anaerobic digestion, it can power us. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I know some towns are starting to collect the food scraps. Is this why? No, that's part of a composting, which is also great too. I mean, we need topsoil. It's a wonderful option. I actually uh, am, I use a curbside compost, which is a, a private or a for-profit business that collects. And it's funny because I have this compost bin and as the, it gets collected on Friday and as the week goes by, I can feel like the heat being generated in my <laughs> tub. And I, of course I keep thinking, oh, if only, if only I, I could had an anaerobic digester in the backyard and I could plug into it. So yeah. And the thing is, is there was federal funding available and you know, no Connecticut company was, you know, was awarded. So okay. uh, I'd like to see that change. Um, when you've been out campaigning, you've been campaigning a lot with the people running for state rep across your district as well. I've been, uh, uh, I do recommend that people go check out Michelle McCabe's uh, social media stuff um, on all platforms. It's really wonderful to see how much you've been out in the communities. Um, in Fairfield, you've got Kristen McCarthy Vehi, you've got uh, Jen Leeper running, you've got uh, Carla Volpe. Um, yes. And then uh, moving up through your district, Ann Hughes and Rebecca Herman Stites. It's a lot of women running in that district. I was going to say, it's a lady fest. <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, I don't want to say, do you think Hartford needs more more women? But but of course it does, right? Everybody needs more women. Come on. No, I mean, I, it, it's funny because it, it I'm sure feels overwhelming to see such a cavalcade of, of, of women. But if you look at the composition of the General Assembly, it's still not representative of the fact that women are, what, 51% of the population. So um, I think diversity in all areas is nothing but a positive thing because we learn so much from people who have a different life experience than we do. And it helps us, especially when you're governing, because you're governing across mm -hmm. a diversity of people. And so if you're truly representing those people, uh, you need to have different voices in Hartford that can remind us of these different experiences. So, I mean, yes, we're all women, but obviously just like if we were a bunch of men too, we wouldn't necessarily look at us as cookie cutter. We are, and not that you were anyway, but like, we're all very, I mean, very different, have different views on things, um, come from different experiences, have different skill sets. So I have to say, I'm, I am consider myself very lucky to be running with these extraordinary women because I learn from them every day and uh, they're wonderful people and they're going to be great, great legislators, those who aren't already in office. And certainly uh, Kristen McCarthy Vehi, uh, who has uh, been my, she's actually my rep. I'm in her district. Oh, okay. And uh, I, she's such a, a mentor and a role model for all of us. Um, uh, nationwide, the story is that, uh, you know, a lot of women stepped up to run following what happened in 2016. And here we are now a couple of days away from uh, undoing that national tragedy. Were you one of the people who stepped up to run inspired by what happened in 2016? Or do you think you would have gone into it uh, either way? I was totally not inspired by 2016 when I decided to you run. You were ready to go. No, no Well, it's I was inspired by the work I do. 
So, uh, you know, I work in economic development. I work in workforce training. Uh, I'll tell you the very first moment that the spark entered into my mind. I, uh, my organization's a member of the Bridgeport Regional Business Council. And I was in a meeting and was told that when they would go to try to recruit businesses to come to Connecticut, uh, they were, nobody would give anyone from Connecticut the time of day um, because it just wasn't appealing for whatever reason. And I was born and raised here and I'm trying to, you know, get entrepreneurs up and running. And I was so, um, what's the word? I don't know. Irritated. (laughs) I was irritated. I was like, well, that's not right. Right. We've got to do something about that. And, you know, I work, um, in my work, there are obviously, um, underlying issues that sometimes we're treating the symptoms of. And uh, I like to address the structural problems while I'm also addressing something that's happening in the moment. So for example, in food insecurity, which is a huge portion of the work that I do, uh, we are passing out a lot of food. As you can imagine, we're in a crisis, although we were passing out a lot of food, to be honest with you, before a pandemic even hit. And why? Because 40% of Connecticut residents are not earning enough money to meet their basic needs. And so do we need to feed people because they have no food right now? Yes, of course, but you cannot do that work and at the same time, not address the structural problems that are causing people who are working to not earn enough to meet their basic needs. And so part of why I wanna go up to Hartford is because I know that I'll have an opportunity to address the underlying structural problems while at the same time continuing to work on a person by person basis to help people and help businesses to be able to be successful. Policy is a wonderful tool for addressing those things. There's five more days time to uh, get out there and knock on some doors or make some calls. I guess in your district, you're doing all calling, right? But across the state, there are people who are door knocking and they can use your help. At this point, we're urging you to reach out to your local candidates. So if you are in Fairfield County, one person you can reach out to is Michelle McCabe. Uh, You can find her contact info at, is it Michelle for CT? Yes, it is indeed. Dot com. Uh, and if you uh, want to look that up on our website at CT Dems, we've got all the candidates listed, no matter where you live. Reach out and help people in this final Get Out the Vote weekend. Thank you very much. We'll be uh, seeing you on Tuesday night. And um, hopefully we have some results by the end of the night. Let's hope so, right? <laughs> let's hope so. All right. And let's hope those results are a lot of Ds. Thank you. Yes. Thank right. you. Let's return to the second half of Michael Cerulli's interview with former Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd. Let's change gears a little bit. We talked a bit about potential the potential of a Senate majority, a Democratic Senate majority. Could you talk a bit about what you think the Democratic Senate majority, say it happens in 2021, should act like? You know, there's a lot of talk about court reform and uh, certain procedural actions, you know, like, you know, even going further than, you know, what uh, Senator Reid did and ab- totally abolished the filibuster. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about those proposals as someone who's, you know, you're obviously a leader in the Senate for so long? Well, Michael, that's a great question. We could probably, we could probably consume a good <laughs> part of the afternoon uh, mm-hmm. here and talking about just that one question. But let me share a couple of thoughts. Let me begin with this. 
you and I are blessed and very fortunate to, to live in this country, in my view. It's not perfect, obviously. We got a lot of work to do. A lot of been improved since you and mm -hmm. I were born. Uh, and, and we've seen some setbacks as well. We're nowhere near that perfect union that the founders of this republic described, but we're getting better mm -hmm. at it from time to time. Right. Uh, and so it takes a lot of work. We're also the most ethnically and religiously diverse, uh, racially diverse country in the world. And I think that's true. Someone may challenge me on that, but I think that's basically true. In a very pluralistic society, you have two choices of leadership or form of government. One, you can realize that you can't get your own way, and so you've got to deal with a diversity of interests. Or you can pray and hope that you get an autocrat. <laughs> And that can provide leadership, uh, and you hope it's a benevolent one, I suppose. Uh, but it's tempting. When people are in trouble, someone who promises to solve all of our problems and just leave it up to me is a very appealing notion when you're in trouble and you're worried about the future. Mm -hmm. But we have done our best work when we've also been a society that recognizes our differences and realize in a pluralistic society, you can't get your own way all the time. You've right. got to sit across the table and deal with people as we do in our daily lives. Uh, in, in any family I know of, there's always compromises, in any <laughs> business setting, in any, in any environment at all. It's painful. You don't have to compromise on your principles, but in order to get things done, you've got to come to solutions. And right now, people are getting pretty exhausted over the fact that the national legislature of this country can't seem to decide what day of the week it is, let alone <laughs> solve the problems on healthcare and job creation and infrastructure and, and energy resources and the long list. So my hope is, as someone who spent 36 years of my life in the legislative body, I never introduced a major bill in 30 years in the Senate without a Republican partner. Now, that may sound like a, 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 a huge mortal sin in many mm -hmm. circles today politically. I would vehemently disagree with that. Uh, I had to learn a, a lesson to do that a couple of times. But once I did, it made sense to me. And one of my best teachers was Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I authored the first child care legislation since World War II. I forget the exact number, but I wanted, I think, $400 million for the National Child Care Program. Bob Dole, the head of the Finance Committee, was only willing to give me $300 million on the bill. I started banging the table and arguing for my $400 million. Ted Kennedy was in the room. He asked Bob Dole if he could take time out and step me outside the room. He said, listen, you take that 300 million. We'll come back next year and fight for that additional 100 million. But don't mm -hmm. turn your nose down this. You may lose it all. And a year from now, you may get nothing. So let's mm -hmm. start with a win. So I went back into the room and I agreed with Bob Dole's number, my <laughs> partisan bill. And that's how the first childcare program started. Today, it's a multi billion dollar program in the United States mm -hmm. over the last 35 years. Compromise worked. And I can tell you, in case after case after case, I saw we could move the country forward when we reached, when we were reaching out to work with the opposition to come to common ground. Now, some don't want to do that, and I understand right. it. But you don't give up the values and the procedures that have allowed this country to make great decisions in my life, in my word. Now, we can modify rules to make it easier and more ability to get things done. So I'm hoping that the alternative is to say, listen, you people treated us terribly. You shoved through two judicial nominations uh, when it was totally wrong to do it. And this most recent one that was confirmed uh, last night yeah. or yeah. one with the Kavanaugh uh, back uh, a couple of years ago uh, when you denied Merrick Garland the opportunity to come forward. I can feel the anger and I can feel the appetite to want to get even. 
Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a smart move. We're going to do this back and forth, or we're going to show leadership in the country and remind people that we live in a democracy. We have to work things out with each other to get the job done. The American mm-hmm. people are getting fed up with this. The polarization, it may satisfy some. It's not where the vast majority of our fellow citizens are. That fellow who's out of work wants to get back to work. That family that has a sick child wants health care. Uh, that person who's got an elderly parent, they need Medicare and Medicaid. They need that kind of help on Social Security. And before we lose the ability to even have a Social Security trust fund, mm-hmm. Joe Biden, if he wins, is going to have a huge amount of work to do. And the more we can cooperate and work together, the better off we're going to be. I'm not giving up my democratic values. I'm not giving up my democratic principles. I am, as Joe says, I represented when I won my seats in the Senate. I just didn't serve the Democrats that elected me or the independents Mm -hmm. or Republicans who voted for me. I represented all of Connecticut. That was my job. I got hired to do that. Joe Biden feels the same about our country. He has said over and over again, he will represent all of our country, even the people who vehemently opposed him. That kind of leadership we need once again in our country. So I hope Mm -hmm. he will do everything possible in the remaining few days of this campaign to get out and vote, urge others to do so, and then to rally around the idea of getting the job done for our country. If you want to be successful as Democrats in the years ahead, we better start producing. For people who've been angry with us, with a lot of just cause, we need to get back to making sure their issues are our priority issues, not beating Republicans, but rather serving the people who have been our strongest supporters for generations. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about your relationship with Joe Biden. Um, I think at various points he's actually described you as his best friend, um, and you certainly have had a key advisory role in this campaign. What have you been talking to him about, and how has that relationship uh, played out in this election? Well, one of the reasons we're great friends is we don't tell stories about each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, Michael. So no, I respect that. I know this is going to sound probably silly to a lot of your, your viewers, the young Dems. You know... Having been a candidate 10 times, uh, I'd have a lot of friends who'd call me and say, listen, you got that debate tomorrow night, say this, say that, mm-hmm. use this line, use that line. I don't do that with Joe Biden, my friend. You know, friendships run deeper than giving advice. He's getting a lot of advice. I've got ideas. But when I talk mm-hmm. to him before a debate, uh, I talk to him after a, a big, long day, I'll call him and just say, how are you doing? And, and talk mm-hmm. to him as friends would talk to each other, uh, realizing what he was going through, realize the anticipation of what may fall into his lap a week from tonight or a week there shortly after. Right, right. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is about as well prepared as any human being in the history of our country for this job. He will be the first president of the United States who has spent as many years in Congress as he has. It mm-hmm. used to be that Lyndon Johnson held that role. Uh, he served as chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He knows the judicial branch of government. He served as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. He knows the importance of international relations and knows virtually every head of state, or almost every head of state around the globe. He served as vice president for eight years. He knows the executive branch. Uh, this is the kind of person, no one has ever had that experience coming into the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say, well, he's, you know, he's been in government too long. We never say that about a doctor or an architect. <laughs> now, picture yeah. a doctor who's never tried this operation. I prefer yeah. to have that operation. Or you don't want to build a house. Anybody never built a house before? I'll take that first. And <laughs> yeah. here, here we are in the most complicated time of our life. We need, we need people with competency who know mm. these institutions and know how they work. Joe Biden, we sat together for 40 years. I know how he functions. 
it wasn't a joke with him. We're just trying to build friendships because he could walk across that proverbial aisle we talk about and sit down next to any Republican in that chamber. And they liked Joe. They didn't always agree with him, but they try and find common ground with it. It's going to be once again, so fortunate for the country that we have someone who has that appetite to do that, has the aptitude to do it, and is well-liked and respected by the opposition, that maybe, maybe we can put behind us an administration only wanted to talk about dividing us. I think the right, country's right. desperate for it. And I think international mm-hmm. leaders, no joke, may not always agree with his foreign policy, but they know him, they like him, and they trust him. And having a president that has that kind of reputation, both domestically and internationally, is going to be a great asset for our country. I think so, too. I couldn't couldn't agree more with you on that. Um, and finally, we'll talk a bit about that uh, international relations angle, because I think the way you and I met each other was was through the Dodd Center at UConn, which focuses, I believe it's called the Dodd Human Rights Impact now, um, and it focuses on the role of the United States as a force for humanitarianism in the world. Um, how important has that work been to you, and what are the what's the current state of, uh, of things there? Yeah. I, I lost you for a second there, Michael. Say that again. The international um, relations, yeah. Yep. And you worked uh, at the Dodd Center. Thanks for that, too. Yeah, talk a bit about uh, your work with the Dodd Center and what you hope to accomplish well, over thanks. the next few years. Thanks for bringing it up. And and, uh, and thank you for uh, spending some time at the Dodd Center. 25 years ago, uh, Bill Clinton was the first sitting president of the United States to come to the University of Connecticut to dedicate the Dodd Center. I think mm-hmm. we had something like ten or 12,000 people Oh, wow. Gamble Pavilion and other places to welcome the president of the United States as he inaugurated the building and the program we started. And over those last quarter of a century, it was the 50th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials. And mm-hmm. for those of you who are listening to this, uh, my, the, the most important thing my father ever did, as he would just tell you, if you're alive, he died very young, was at age 38, he was the executive trial counsel at the Nuremberg trials from 1945 to 1946. I was a year old when my father left for 15 months and he went over and uh, prosecuted the first 21 defendants, the hierarchy of the Nazi regime. Mm -hmm. And he wrote my mother every single day, 400 letters from Nuremberg, uh, at great length, the letters, 10, 12, 14 page handwritten letters every night describing the events at Nuremberg and what was happening and his views of the world. And I'll never forget a letter he wrote in June, 1946. He said to my mother, I'll never do anything again that's important as what I've done here. And I can only hope that my children will one day be proud of what I did and refer to the law we made here and maybe be at the bar themselves and, and, and will take on this cause of human rights of mm-hmm. themselves. I remember reading that letter, which I didn't know these letters existed until 1995. I was already in my third term in the Senate. And that particular paragraph in that letter in June of 1946 was in a very emotional moment for me. Uh, here I was in Congress. And a chance. My father was speaking to me as a two-year-old, in a sense, <laughs> saying that if you ever get to be in a position to do something, do something about what mm-hmm. we're, we had to wrestle with here. So I couldn't think of a better, more appropriate way to celebrate my father's public life than to start a program involved in something that he thought was the most important thing he did in his life. And so mm-hmm. the Human Rights Program, the Dodd Center at UConn, began that process. And over the years, we've added to it. We've recognized groups and individuals who've made a great difference. Last spring, you may recall, Michael, we had mm-hmm. Brian Stevenson. Yeah, that was outstanding. Just Mercy, or saw the movie of Just Mercy, and Brian Stevenson's work with the Equal Justice Institute in, uh, in Alabama uh, has been remarkable. 
-hmm. Other people like the prime ministers of England and Ireland are trying to resolve the differences there. Uh, nurses, Doctors Without Borders, been a long list of people that have been recipients of the Dodd Center uh, Prize in financial support for their work. And then a guy named Gary Gladstein, UConn grad, uh, worked in the human rights area. And he decided shortly after we started the Dodd Center that he wanted to make a contribution to human rights. And he started through incredible philanthropy and generosity, the Human Rights Institute at the University mm -hmm. of Connecticut. We're the only public university, the only state with its public university that has an undergraduate degree and, and graduate certificate degree in human rights. So we've married the two. That is the Dodd Center, the impact programs with the Human Rights Institute and we're growing it. We're gonna take it now for the next 25 years uh, so we can continue that work and do things as we presently do. We award each year a children's book on human rights. Just had a great program that the other night at UConn on Zoom because of what we're going through. <laughs> uh, we've had speakers, lecture series. We still do the Dodd Prize. We have, we have 20 school districts in Connecticut now that have human rights curricula uh, where our teachers are trained at the University of Connecticut during summer months on how to incorporate what is a human right, beginning even mm -hmm. in middle schools and high schools, so that people have a greater understanding of it. We're promoting more of a dialogue, sort of a civics dialogue, competing interests in the country. We need to get back to that. We do. Where we can have civil debates, strong ones, passionate ones, but ones where we can resolve or at least air out our issues with each other rather than just go to our respective corners and scream at each other. So yep. there are a lot of things we can do here, maybe a film program, uh, rewarding, uh, rewarding people who draft or do things in the drama departments and so forth at UConn and elsewhere, young people, challenging them to come up with ideas and concepts in human rights. So there's mm -hmm. so many wonderful ideas at a university, at a public university. Uh, here, yep. The governor's been fantastically supportive. The new president at UConn is well behind this yep. program. Tom's great. great. As well as the foundation and other people. So I'm very excited about this. And I hope people who are following this, we'd love to get involved. We can find ways for you to make sure this becomes a part of your educational, if you're at the university or at other schools in Connecticut, uh, we can somehow get you involved as well. So Michael, thanks mm -hmm. for bringing it up. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I know. That's one of the reasons I brought it up because a lot of our listeners are not only my peers at UConn, but also students around the state who are interested. And it really is. I mean, I, I was able to get involved in it through uh, Dr. Matoma, who's now the head right. of the combined program. Um, and, and it's really outstanding that we have such a, a place here in Connecticut um, dedicated to human rights uh, and its impact around the world. So I want to thank you for all your work on that. And I'm sure we're going to be doing a lot of stuff together in the future on it. Um, before we before we close, I want to ask you, is there anything uh, you'd like to say? I mean, you said made so many great points about what this election means to you and to Americans. Are there any final uh, messages out there from a pro who's done this? I, I heard someone quote you the other day when I said there's eight days until election day. They said, well, as Chris Dodd would say, you don't count the day you're in. You don't count election days. So there's really only six days to go. Um, <laughs> any any parting wisdom hey, towards the folks who are out there that, right now? It could be long days sometimes. And make it sound shorter. You, nothing much you could do on election day. I'll tell you something I get asked about a lot. Uh, if, you, if you ask someone, what, what, is a, what is a good public servant? Uh, what is a good elected public servant? What, what qualities do you think they need? And invariably, one of the first qualities that is often mentioned is, well, we need, you need to be a good speaker, uh, an eloquent speaker. And, and, uh, and we start, if we don't listen to that as the number one thing, it's pretty close to the top. And it certainly helps to be a good communicator, to be able to share your thoughts and explain your views. But I'll tell you a quality that's more important than being a good talker is being an eloquent listener. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think we talk about that. People really want to be heard. They, they, they want you to listen to them. Uh, when I first ran for Congress in 1974, I was 29 years old. And, uh, and on my brochures, I found one of them the other day going through a bunch of boxes. And I, I, I'd almost forgotten this. But all of my campaign literature in 1974 had as my slogan, Chris Dodd is a good listener. Now, I said that primarily, Michael, because at 29, I wasn't sure I had a lot to say at that point, but, <laughs> but I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to be a good listener. And I've since learned how valuable it is. And I think you'll find if you go out, one of the things I always say about Joe Biden, Joe's a good speaker, and, and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and people tease him about the length of his speeches and so forth. But I'll tell you what he's really good at is being a great listener. And listener isn't necessarily just talking. Joe can listen by, it was a great video that went viral the other day. He was at a place and there were families that had been lost in Parkland High School. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he was consoling uh, some adults and he's sort of walking away. And all of a sudden, you can see him turn around. And there's this young boy, an autistic child mm-hmm. of a man who had lost his life at Parkland High School, a teacher. And this young boy grabbed Joe and Joe held him uh, like it was his own son. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was nothing planned. It was nothing orchestrated. It wasn't a setup. Uh, it wasn't a conversation. Joe tried to console him in many ways, this young boy uh, that obviously has his own challenges as a child. But just that communication. So communication isn't just what you say uh, or, or what conversation you have. And I think we're going to be fortunate. I talked about Joe's background and his credentials and, and qualities he brings to the job. Mm-hmm. One of them is, I, it, it's always hard to describe, and I know we say this about a lot of people, so-and-so is a really decent human being. I've never known a more decent human being than Joe Biden, in or out of politics, and having that kind of compassion, what he's been through as a person, having lost children and a spouse, having recovered from them, picked himself back up. Lily was given the last rites a couple of times with aneurysms. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been as close to death's door as you could be, uh, dying. He's lost the closest human beings in his life. He gets back up and he can still reach out and reaches out in a way that I think it's awfully difficult. So you can be empathetic or you can be sympathetic, excuse me. But Joe brings an empathy to these situations that we're going through in a deeper, deeper way. And uh, he's a good, eloquent listener in that sense. And, um, and so I, I'd hope that people would you know, remind audiences of that. Even people, as I say, Joe's going to represent whether they like it or not, he's going to be fighting for them. That uh, They talk about that in the coming days. And it's always good to not just talk to the people who are with you, but reach out to the ones who are not. <laughs> um, you know, knocking on those doors and, and talking to friends and neighbors and so forth. And just share those thoughts. Yeah, we can disagree about the Affordable Care Act or the Dodd-Frank bill or whatever you want, but let's go a little deeper than that. Let's talk about the kind of leadership. What kind of a human being gets up in the morning and thinks about them mm-hmm. uh, rather than themselves. Right. Uh, does not polarize and offer to challenge one group versus another, but comes up with language and rhetoric to bring people together. So it's, it's, it's probably the most important election of my lifetime. I've said that many times before, but I didn't anticipate a time like this, uh, given the pandemic problem, the economic hardship that people are facing. We've got an awful lot to get back uh, on track with. And so I hope people will vote. I hope people will recognize that there is a significant difference. This is not a question of choosing a Republican over a Democrat in the mm-hmm. presidential race. This is a choosing a difference between choosing people who I think the country needs, 
that is a reflection of who we are as a nation that not only tolerates our diversity, but respects it and embraces it. And we need that in our country again today. That's what our founders intended. They couldn't have anticipated everything, obviously, about us. But I think they had sort of a gem of an idea already in their minds that we would be a highly diverse nation in the years to come. And we gave you a constitution that makes it possible for you to embrace that diversity. And that's what we're wrestling with today, that, that constitutional ability to embrace each other despite our differences. And remember, it's not about you or me. It's about us. Thank you. Exactly. That's a great message to end it on. So with one week, and I should point out that the person who told me that quote of yours is a woman by the name of Rosa DeLauro. So (laughs) it turns out that uh, listening to Senator Dodd's advice can get you. Rosa was my campaign manager. She was only the second woman to be a chief of staff in a Senate office when I asked her to do that for me in 1981. And she spent eight years with me through two campaigns and running my office. And now she spent 29 years, almost 30 years in Congress. Mm-hmm. And she has a great chance of chairing the House Appropriations Committee. Yes, she does. We have John Larson that will be a very senior member of the Ways and Means Committee. And we have a congressman right up the river from us in Springfield, Mass., who is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. So within a space of about 60 miles in this big country of ours, we'll have three members of Congress who are sitting on the, in the leadership of two of the most powerful committees in Congress. And can keep in mind our needs in Connecticut. They've got to watch mm-hmm. out for the country as well but it's nice to have a Connecticut representation that will have a chance to see to it that Connecticut can start getting back some of the tax dollars that we send down to Washington every year. We send a lot more than we get back. Mm-hmm. So having Rosa and, uh, and John Larson and the other members of our delegation, Joe Courtney, uh, uh, Johanna Hayes, who I think is doing a great job yep. in Congress, fantastic. And she's got a tough race and I know she's doing well, but need to get people over there and help her out. And then Jim Himes, uh, down in the Fairfield County. Yep, my uh, congressman. 4th District is a great person and doing a terrific job. We've got great leadership. We've got a wonderful governor. The people of this state have come to appreciate tremendously for his leadership and great leadership in our legislative branch with our constitutional officers. They're not on the ballot this year. The delegation is, the state legislative races. But I hope our Democratic candidates will go out, be great listeners, uh, talk about us and not us, me or you. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> knock on those doors and do it carefully and safely, be healthy yep. and listen to people. And I'm confident if we do all of those things, we'll end up with a new president in our country. We'll maintain our strong leadership in Congress. Uh, we'll have good, a good legislature backing a great governor. So I'm very hopeful about the events coming over the next week. Me too. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us, Senator Chris Dodd, former senator from Connecticut, former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, and current advocate for Joe Biden and for all of the things that we hold dear to us as Democrats. So thank you for joining us, and I wish you all the best, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, Dave, I always have to find a way to inject UConn into these conversations. And with Chris Dodd, it was pretty easy. Senator Dodd has been a really big member of the UConn community and, of course, active around the state campaigning for Democrats. Um, Michelle McCabe, I thought that conversation was awesome, and I'm looking forward to getting out this weekend and knocking some doors for her. Another example of, uh, you know, the kind of life experience and the sort of professional experience and the knowledge that people bring to bear on the state legislature. If you want to see her in the state legislature, help out. Now, if you're not in that area, help out where you are. ctdems.org slash volunteer is one way to volunteer, or more importantly, reach out to your local candidates through Facebook, through uh, making a call, contact them on the website, or honestly, look at our events page on Facebook and show up. 
outstanding. Well, we'll be sure to take a look at those. And Dave, it's been a great ride. We're going to continue this podcast after the election. But I guess the next time you and I speak, uh, we might have a new president. Uh, let's hope the votes are counted and we know. But uh, we are <laughs> going to take a little break from the podcast for a week or two. Uh, by the time we get back, I hope those votes are counted and we know. Or I hope it's such a blowout because each and every one of you is telling all of your friends, especially those in like North Carolina and, and, and Iowa and, and Florida to get out and vote. Outstanding. So I just want to say on behalf of Dave and I and all the guests in the podcast, thank you to our listeners. Um, we really appreciate everything you've been doing to keep up with us. And we appreciate all the work you're doing to elect Democrats here in Connecticut. So thank you. We will see you soon. And let's get out the vote.